it's just a replica. But this is uh, in Supernatural. This is uh, Samuel Colt's gun, and it's it's the only gun that can kill just about any single monster. Uh, and she got she got me the the replica with the with the demon killing bullets to go with it. Oh my god! She's too cute, man. That's so beautiful. So if we need to kill any monsters, wow, we've got the cold, dude. You wow. know, it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> and now we got plans. Uh, the the supernatural convention is going to be in Chicago this summer. So. Wow. We're gonna we're gonna go. It'll be my first weird fan convention, and I'm just curious because I just want to see the fucking freaks. You know, I want. You've never been to a convention before, like this? no, no. Wow, I've been to the car convention. Oh well, that's now that's. <laughs> I like a good car convention. Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. The truth is, guys, starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? You crown them, yeah. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined here with, as always... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of us comes up with a theme for the week and the other two program films in response to that theme. And last week, we had a lot of fun when we talked about sick day movies. We were trying to lighten the mood a little bit because we had been sort of roughing it a bit with some some very violent films and, and it was a lovely conversation. We revisited some some old favorites and in one of those films was a performer that I think gives us a, a great deal of warmth and, and makes us feel good on a sick day and that was the performer Paul Dooley. So I wanted to keep the good vibes going and take a look at some of the uh, some of the films in the career of uh, America's favorite dad, Paul Dooley. And so this week, the theme uh, that I was tasked with uh, delivering is Double Dooley. And uh, it's funny the, the the result of of both of these films are sort of the two extremes of Paul Dooley and how he can be deployed in a film. We have the memorable. But brief, single scene, Paul Dooley picture, and we have the odd, rare occurrence where Paul Dooley is the lead performer in a film. So in a way, these films are extreme polar opposites um, and kind of outliers in a way, in a certain sense, with Paul Dooley's career, because he is someone that usually has somewhat of a meaty role um, and typically is never leading a, a film. And, you know, I think we'll sort of go over maybe how successful that is because it's perhaps both are examples of not how to use Paul Dooley but I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that why don't we start with the one that he is extremely heavily featured in so Marsh tell us a little bit about what you brought I had the virtue of picking after Andy had selected, and I knew he had a a very small role in that one. So uh, I leaned into getting as much Dooley 
as possible. I wanted to double down on on Dooley. And so I thought the perfect way to do this, of course, would be uh, to pick a film by a director that he worked with more than anyone. And that's Robert Altman. So I chose A Perfect Couple from 1979. This film was part of Altman's five-picture deal at Fox, where he made Three Women, A Wedding, Quintet, A Perfect Couple, and Health. And this film came specifically out of A Wedding, which had been made a year prior. And this was sort of a continuation with the collaborators of that film. So specifically the writer, Alan Nichols, and a lot of the performers, as they often do in Altman films, spill over from one film to the next. So this film is uh, hard to describe because it is uh, one part romantic comedy or romance film and another part concert film. And it is very much, you know, one of those Altman ideas, you know, where you're just throwing these things together. Whether it'll work or not, who knows, who cares, you know? And so the film specifically is about Alex Theodopoulos, as played by Paul Dooley, and he is uh, a middle-aged bachelor who works as an antique dealer in his family's business, and he has a uh, quite the family. Uh, They are very Greek and very conservative and very eccentric. And on the other hand, we have Sheila, who he meets through an old school dating service. Video dating. Video dating service. And Sheila is a singer and she's part of a band called Keeping Them Off the Streets. And they're kind of this bohemian soft rock uh, kind of band. So these two characters meet from completely different walks of life and and have this uh, this kind of, uh, you know, video dating uh, adventure, essentially. And all the meanwhile, because of Sheila's involvement with this band, there are full-blown musical numbers deployed throughout as comments on the action and reflections on the action uh, and just... It's an Altman film. We're just hanging out at the rehearsal space. We're hanging out at the concert. We're hanging out at the Theodopolis home listening to classical music. So it's just these two things kind of thrown together. And and yeah, we've got Dooley in the lead uh, getting a lot of of screen time. So I thought that would be a, a fun thing to explore. Absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing it. Andy, what did what did you bring to the table? Well, you know, I feel like I should uh, preface my my uh, introduction here by by saying that, or or at least pointing out that that when you gave us the prompt, you said it doesn't matter how much Dooley's in the movie. You of know, course. As, as long as he's in there, like I'm, I'm cool with whatever you pick. He didn't so, even have to say anything, and I was totally fine with it. I am not admonishing <laughs> you for your selection. So you know, I, I just, you know, I just want to point that out yeah. because, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, you know, blink, blink, and you miss him in in the film that I I chose, and and selfishly just picked a movie that I'd never heard of, but. Based on the cast, based on the director, and based on the the writer, uh, 
couldn't couldn't pass up the opportunity to to take a look at this film. So I chose a movie that just sounded like a a good time, and uh, I certainly had a great time with it. I regret nothing about this choice. <laughs> so my pick was uh, or is Jack Starrett's 1974 film. The Gravy Train, a.k.a. The Dion Brothers. Uh, I'd never heard of this film before. I'm assuming our listeners have also probably uh, mostly never heard of this uh, before. I think the fact that it is listed under two different titles might also obscure people's ability to find it. Uh, But we were able to watch it on YouTube, and it's uh, an interesting uh, rip from somebody recording it off of Cinemax television at some point, I suppose. So it's out there, folks, and you can find it. And it is a wild ride. Uh, the Gravy Train. I think we'll settle on the Gravy Train. I like the, yeah, the Gravy too. Train. Stars Stacy Keach and Frederick Forrest as two brothers, the Dion brothers, Calvin and Russell, respectively. And these two are sort of podunk laborers from West Virginia who suddenly, as the film opens, decide that that they've had enough of this working man's drudgery and they set out uh, to improve their lives by Stacy Keach's plan, Calvin's plan, to open up a seafood restaurant in Washington, D.C., named the Blue Grotto. That's his big plan. But in order for them uh, to do this, to to get the money to open up the Blue Grotto, they've first got to, uh, you know, get their big, uh, their their nest egg. And this this ties them in with a a group of criminals, and and we don't really understand how they meet, but but suddenly they're they're part of a crew that's planning an armored car robbery. And uh, following this this heist, that's when things get really interesting. There's double crossing. There's uh, hostage taking. There is basically. Uh, a 45-minute-long running shootout that sort of climaxes the film in a very impressive way. It is also of note that um, it's written by uh, Terrence Malick under a a pseudonym originally. Now it's, you know, if you look on Letterboxd, it'll say written by Terrence Malick, but it is funny, it's wild, it's anarchic, and uh, it's... uh, very, very little bit of Dooley, but but it is, as you mentioned, I think a, a a pretty good little moment. So we'll we'll get to that, of course, as we as we discuss the film. Well, you know, it ties in actually with Dooley's origin because he is from West Virginia, wow. just like the Dion brothers. So I I do think, without actually knowing this, but I assume his casting in the film was related to the fact that he was a West Virginian and maybe fit into the milieu of this film. Maybe it was random, but just something I uh, I noticed there. Well, his ah. his scenes in DC though. Yes. 
Yeah, but no, definitely. It is an interesting. <laughs> Maybe an interesting he auditioned to be there. a Dion brother. You never know, you know. Technical advisor, perhaps. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Both films have a lot of character and they're full of a lot of great one liners that seem like they have um some regional genesis, you know. So it doesn't surprise me that the kind of zingers that Dooley is delivering in Gravy Train would kind of fit in with like the milieu of that like kind of jokey West Virginia atmosphere and character you get from from the the titular brothers. It was funny watching both of these films. I watched Gravy Train first and I I just thought, I was like, this is a great example of a film where all I could think of after Dooley scene is, man, not enough Dooley. Like, I need more Dooley. Like, love looking at this guy. But to be honest, on the flip side, I mean, I, I really did like both of these films to certain extents and various degrees. But watching A Perfect Couple, I kind of occasionally wondered, maybe this is too much Dooley. Maybe I don't <laughs> like him as, as a leading man. He's just such a comforting presence in supporting roles, you know, like a nice meaty supporting role. Um, but there's still plenty of charm. It's it's a perplexing character and performance in in, in that film. But I guess is there is there such a thing? I guess I would ask I would ask you both. Is there is there such a thing as too much Paul Dooley in, in oh, your book? No, I no. I I I I might uh, slightly disagree with you mm. there because I really enjoyed uh, his presence and and I really enjoyed getting to to sink my teeth into all that that he had to offer in that film and and I would say as Marsh sort of pointed out in his intro that you know the film takes so many diversions I mean uh, of course. it's sort of like he's only in like half the movie yes. if you think about it there's there's a lot of scenes without Dooley and I was kind of going like Let's get maybe back. I could do yeah. with less you know <laughs> keeping him off the streets and a little bit more Dooley characters That's true. and That's and true. Dooley's family yeah. that is a great group of actors who could have used a lot more screen time and are certainly like doing uh so much with what they have you know um but yeah I I, I I don't know. I I I think that uh, it was just enough, Dooley, for just me. Enough. You know, I think it's it's just an odd character in an odd role. You know, maybe yeah. even for any actor, because again, with these Altman things, what's what's going on here? You know, yeah. he's a he's a very introspective character and a very kind of repressed and and quiet character because of his family life, right? But. In that sense, I, I really loved watching Dooley in a key I haven't really seen him in. You yeah. Know? yeah. So so to that extent, it was just kind of like a fun new experience for me. Yeah, you know, definitely. I think, of course, the film has some shortcomings, you know, particularly with some of, I think, the chemistry in the relationship. And it is... Yes, these, the whole point of the goddamn film is these people are different and right. they're trying to, like, date through it or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's just... You know, it struck me that one of the issues that I think some people could find in in sometimes connecting to certain Altman films is that Altman uh, has this ability to to create characters who are both meant to be kind of like an an archetype, but also like an extremely specific person. Yes, that yeah. they they can kind of I think depending on the actor get caught in between those two spaces. And I think Dooley does a really good job of sort of straddling both of those. But I think that Marta Heflin as Sheila 
isn't really giving him a lot in those moments. And I think no. that's, that's for me where I'm picking up on, on some of what you're describing in the chemistry, because like he, I found to be very like touching and I saw, uh, him bumbling and stumbling and I saw his emotions and I was, I was really able to sort of like track like the the choices that he was making and the the failures and the you know the foibles but with her like even a lot of her like facial expressions like i couldn't tell if she liked him or she didn't like him half the time yeah. and i know that's right. like part of it is like they're they're struggling to to connect um but even in the moments where i felt like with what was happening, this was supposed to be a moment where they were like connecting. They seemed distant and she seemed very distant from him. Like, I think she is, is playing it so much more dramatically than at times the script or the tone of the film demanded. I agree. I I don't think she's given a ton to do, but I do also think she just generally gives like a pretty bad performance especially compared to some of the other people in the film because i think you know marsh the way you've contextualized it i think maybe clarifies my reaction to the film it was maybe Dooley's character was a little off-putting at times where i was kind of exhausted uh, in a funny way but i think his performance is very good and he does carry those scenes when sometimes he needs to be the one that's providing all of the energy because i do think her dramatic performance and his very comedic performance that's still grounded in some sort of character reality really works quite well. And it is a radically different mode than I'm used to for him because he is like actively trying to be charming to varying degrees of success like his character is. Um, and it's funny seeing him sort of fumbling around as the romantic lead, just being like a schlubby guy like Paul Dooley, you know? <laughs> well, I think that's, you know, part of the Altman thing is that it's it's a collaboration and it's a gamble. And mm -hmm. he gambles on performers and they have to bring a lot to the table, yeah. right? Yes. They have to bring their own characters, their own dialogue. They've got to bring that shit. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why Altman loved Paul Dooley, because he had a background in stand-up and radio and television and could crack a joke and, and be sharp, you know, and just be naturally funny. But you got to bring a lot to it, right? And, and yeah, like, yeah, I was thinking at least for a time that her character was maybe just, yeah, this kind of like zonked out, you know, like late 70s, like <laughs> hippie yeah, uh, burnout. Type, type yeah. burnout type of character. But yeah, it really, it really doesn't develop uh, or, or get the depth, I think, you know, maybe necessary to really to really sell it. Should have been Shelley Duvall. Sure. Oh, yes. One thing I found interesting was this quote from Dooley about Altman, and I think it's reflect reflective of the kind of, you know, uh, presence Dooley is, but he said, Bob likes to do what some artists call working with found objects. An actor does something that's unexpected, and Bob, in some cases, you may not like it, but if he likes it, he puts it right in the movie. He loves these happy accidents, and I was one of his found objects. He just mm. found me somewhere, and put me in these movies. What is his Altman debut? What's the first Altman Dooley's in? A Wedding. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 
this was because Altman's wife, Catherine, had seen Julie in a play uh, and just was like, this guy's terrific, Bob, you should meet him. And that was it. And he met him and just like, you know, the Altman casting casting test was like, did you, did he like you? Yeah, you know, can you hang? <laughs> yeah, can, yeah. Can you yeah. hang? You know, did you make him laugh? You know, and from there, uh, yeah, they worked together several times. And after this film, Dooley co-wrote Health with Altman, so they, right. you know, even furthered their partnership uh, beyond that. And I was was sort of impressed with the film's ability to to make him uh, so lovable because. You know, he isn't just like the scolding dad from from breaking away here. Yeah. Like he's also got to be, uh, yeah, the romantic lead, and, and certainly in breaking away. You know, we were just there. Like there is a bit of romance that that develops in that film. You know, we see the the rekindling of his uh, relationship with his wife, and it's it's quite touching at times. Uh, but but here, like. There's like full on scenes where he's got to be like sexy too, you know. There's yeah. like there's some there's a couple like bedroom scenes with Paul Dooley. And yeah, we've got a shirtless Dooley at many points during this film. Yeah, he's yeah. even like working out with his like home exercise equipment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really opened up for me um, his range without a doubt. I was just so shocked when the movie began, and his voice is so soft. I'm so used to hearing him kind of take on a rougher inflection in his voice, like a half mocking, half scolding type of father's voice that he would bring to a lot of his comedic performances. And here he's soft and gentle and at times, but at least his voice is as he's trying to be a charming romantic lead. Um, and that was the last thing I expected from him. So that was pretty exciting. Well, he's also quiet because he's asleep at the L.A. Philharmonic uh, when the movie <laughs> opens and he wakes up uh, on this date. But that's when, you know, the film is doing this, you know, parallel thing between the characters. And it goes all the way down the line in terms of the approach to this film. So. Alex's sister plays in the the Philharmonic. And so the family is also obsessed with classical music. But this, of course, is then contrasted constantly where Alex and his Greek family uh, love classical music and then Sheila's in a, a rock band, you know? Mm -hmm. And now the whole film revolves around these two different worlds and people are always, yeah, you know, playing music or listening to music uh, as like a point-counterpoint throughout the film. Mm -hmm. There's also another uh, parallel, which is... You know, in thinking about the title, A Perfect Couple, uh, we get the parallel between this, like, this, this struggling new romance and what appears at first to us to be a perfect couple that gets introduced in the opening shot, yep. you know, at this Hollywood Bowl where, yeah, we eventually see Sheila and Alex on their first date and they're not maybe connecting so easily uh there's this other couple a man and a woman and it again also appears to be an older man and a younger woman and they are wearing matching outfits right they're wearing the exact same thing at the at the the concert and they are just 
so in love. They're perfect. They're perfect. And it's it's contrasting in that opening date. Like he keeps kind of cutting back and forth between Alex and Sheila and this couple who we're not like you know, directly introduced to by Altman. We we really just kind of get glimpses into They're like that. Tati characters. They just are like a set piece that like keep reappearing with no dialogue. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And they also show up at the dating service. Did you notice they're on the promotional materials? Oh, I missed <laughs> yeah. that. That's great. Clever. And by the way, the, the dating service is called Great Expectations. Yeah. And it's uh. got this perfect couple on there. But I do think you know thinking about this film in parallels is is a good thing to do because that's sort of like how it's constructed because there's also parallels in how these characters behave and i guess if there are antagonists in this film it is the sort of father figures the patriarchs the patriarchs yeah. of these two different clans and and we have Panos, who's Alex's dad who rules his home with an iron fist and for fun conducts to classical music played on record while his family sits around and listens to it. (laughs) Psychotic behavior. And this includes, by the way, his family includes uh, Alex's brother-in-law, Fred, played by Henry Gibson, Mm -hmm. uh, and in a talk about needing more of a certain actor, Dennis Franz as one of the clan. So they've got that whole situation going on. And then on the flip side keeping them off the streets, the band. They've got Teddy, the band leader, who is every bit of a tyrant as Alex's, you know, conservative Greek dad, but now they're in, you know, communal hippie space and he's bullying everyone and making them practice and, you know, finding finding band members for the slightest infraction. Yes. And it turns out, as I learned researching keeping them off the streets, real band that uh, had broken up but was reunited for this film. And it was co-screenwriter Alan Nichols had put together that band of Broadway people and it was people from Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar and they all just like formed this little rock band and so that's what it is it's all these Broadway people in this rock band so yeah there's like that element too you know it feels like a Broadway rock band at times yes well because the the stage shows they 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 have very elaborate kind of like design. They're very theatrical. Like it mm-hmm. isn't just people standing up on a stage and singing. Like there's a lot of like pantomime going on and people like kind of performing in the background, but like kind of like acting, uh, acting in like the background of, of whatever the song is. And just blocking in general. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and like props on the stage. I mean, there's, there's like the moment where, you know, Sheila's trying to get away to go on this date with Alex at a certain point and she's not singing, you know, but she's, she's sort of in the background, like playing a character that's just kind of like, you know, a part of the song, but not singing. And she's kind of like, I'm not even singing. It's just rehearsal. Can I leave? And like Teddy like scolds her and is like, you may not be singing, but your presence is 
every much a part of this show, like as the people who are singing at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you stay here, you sit down, you're going to get fined or whatever. It's like, whoa. Yeah. His, his, his biggest fear is that he maintains like the, the cohesion of the group and the safety and like the, the goodness of the group, you know, like she has to stay, even though she's not performing because we are a communal unit here. But at the same time, if she arrives at work with a little bit of a cold, the moment he hears a sneeze, he's like, you need need to get out of here because you are jeopardizing everyone's health because all this is an ecosystem that we're developing here if like if you fuck this up like that is it you know like you've ruined us so you need to go and recover um yeah it's quite intense and on the flip side alex is like not allowed to have a social life right he is not allowed to date not allowed to do anything just work at the old antique warehouse and then go to the castle that the family lives in yeah and like it's a similar, it's a very like similar kind of vibe because there's you know like a, again in the parallel that that Altman develops throughout the film, like there's there's a scene where they all like arrive in the dining room for dinner, and and Alex is late, right? Yeah, and it's like you can hear a pin drop when when you see like two empty spaces at the table as you know Alex and his sister both stroll in a little late and and certainly as we discover Alex's sister might have a, a more valid excuse to be showing up late to the <laughs> table but uh, but yeah it's the same kind of like chastising you see it you know it, it certainly uh, has like sort of you know different reasons but it's a very similar element of control that is being like exerted on uh seemingly like every aspect of their waking life yeah i wrote down a lot like suffocating you know and that's these sort of worlds that these two characters come from and to me it was such a late 70s you know take because it's sort of like on the one hand you have this open commune type situation yeah which is tyrannical and then you have you know the conservative patriarchal family which is tyrannical and you're like yeah this is the you know it's the late 70s now like it's all fucked everything sucks (laughs) yeah Yeah. everything sucks which sort of surprised me that like alex was so heavy-handed with her like so quickly uh yeah. you know like he's really like imposing himself on her very very uh rapidly in this relationship you know they have their first date and it is in the classic kind of romantic comedy you know genre uh you know this kind of meet cute first date where you know they're at the hollywood bowl as you pointed out marsh and then suddenly it starts pouring rain in la in los angeles <laughs> we've talked about this before you know throughout the whole film it feels like they're people that just really should not be together they don't seem like the perfect couple and at the same time then it's as if it's uh, cosmically the film is trying to tell us they, <laughs> that maybe they really shouldn't be together because their dates are so disastrous like this such as a rainstorm coming in through los angeles yeah and again the 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 contrast between alex and sheila and that aforementioned perfect couple like you know alex and sheila are getting like so they don't dead. have an umbrella yeah they're like really struggling and then it's like cut to the perfect couple and they have like matching ponchos and they've got their their umbrellas and they're they're just smiling and laughing dry and and prepared for anything that could possibly happen and yeah alex and sheila sort of struggled through this first date and and it does end with a a pretty passionate kiss uh, a a kiss at the end of the night but then like right after that Alex is like 
we're together now, you know, and, and, you know, he's, he's just kind of throwing himself at her, like just coming across very, to me, just, uh, yeah, very, very like heavy handed in a way that I, I felt like you would think both of them would want to escape from, but I guess maybe also part of the idea is that's all Alex understands. You know, he only understands that kind of like, you're going out with me on Saturday night. No excuses, no if, and, or buts, you know, I'm coming over to your place. I'm giving you, cause she's like very like, Hey, come on, slow down, chill out, whatever. And he's just like, Nope, Nope, Nope. We're going out. We're going out Saturday night, eight thirty. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It feels like his father, Paul Dooley's father in the film being such a tyrannical influence on his life has bled into his own courting rituals because in order to achieve that passionate kiss, it is an extremely aggressive uh, sort of just like thrusting himself into that situation to achieve that kiss. You know, he he demands that he walks her to his door with like a grin on his face. And then, you know, she lives in this loft at the at the big at like at the top of this warehouse. So they have to take up a service elevator. And he's like, I know how to use one of these. I used to work at a place we use this. So he he's like setting it up. He's taking her up to the top um, and then she very cleverly in order to get him to stop literally probably walking into her bedroom she uses the gate of the service elevator to like sort of trap him in there and pin him in (laughs) but even then before the top can then come back down it's like it's a nice image it's paul dooley like squeezing his body between the two like shifting doors of a service elevator to like squeeze himself through yeah but he's he's aggressive and he's extremely persistent and he is in a very creepy way a guy that just refuses to take no for an answer and he does behave that way throughout the film but I think that largely comes from the environment that he himself is trying to get himself out of this. Like, and he's desperate, yeah. you know, yeah, he's, he's desperate. truly desperate. Like, I think they're both desperate to, to escape their situations. And the speak again, another parallel, Ryan, you just reminded me the other service elevator is in the antique warehouse and we see the whole Greek family ride in the service elevator. So right. everything has this, yeah, this like dual uh, thing going on. But yeah, it struck me that he is just desperate. And I think a guy like that, too, is also in a hurry if he really likes her to make it official, because I think in his mind, the only way to please his father is to say like, this is my wife, you know, like it's kind of like an impossible situation. Like if he's not allowed to date anyone, how is he ever going to get married? You know? And so for him, it's like, let's go, you know, let's get this thing going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is, as the film goes on, you know, they, they sort of introduce, um, those ideas of mortality and time and life is short and and stuff, especially with you know his sister, we discover is very very sick and he's in this like kind of nightmarish family. The only one he seems to connect with on any kind of emotional level, on any kind of human level, is his sister, the cellist, um, and she is also someone that that is you know certainly doted on by the father. But in her own way, also trying to to escape, to break free. There's also in in Sheila's world, you know, other characters that are also starting to question this unit, this living situation that they're all in, and 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 thinking about moving on and and you know growing out of it. In in a way, it it, it strikes me that you know Teddy's 
Teddy's group, you know, keeping him off the streets. Uh, I almost think these people have been together like this for, for like 10 years now. Right. And it's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, Teddy probably was at a certain point, like young and this was all fun and brash, but it's gone on too long. They're all getting old. The, the It isn't just an endless party anymore. They've got babies and people are yes. getting pregnant. And like, it's, it's, it isn't the, the free love sixties anymore. It's sort of, it now all just is starting to feel, yeah, like work. No one really seems to be having a good time right. in that love. Yeah. And I think, I think Sheila sees her roommate who, is pregnant and and she also yeah gets that sense of longing and being like what the fuck you know what am i doing here or whatever uh and in particular too this isn't really like elaborated on too much but she's also like a a like a replacement in the band she's not an original member you know the the person who occupied her position became a solo artist and so she's also kind of yeah like an outsider even within this group and i think we can all agree yeah it's it's 1979 maybe instead of keeping them off the streets you put them on the streets Trying to figure out the, the 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 like the the genesis of that name for for a band. Like I was really right. trying to understand yeah. like keeping them off the streets is is it is it an ironic name for a band? Like is it, it seems a, like hopeful. Yeah, you know? yeah. I was like, In the worst way. Right. I'm like, who are we keeping <laughs> off the streets? Like. <laughs> Troubled youth, or <laughs> right, yeah. I, just just hippies in general, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they have like this sort of, you know, again, it's like this communal utopia that he's trying to impose amongst everyone in the group. But it is just like suffocating and weird. They're just living in a loft. They have no privacy. There's no walls. They're just curtains. But yeah, it's like, yeah, who are who are they keeping off the streets? What is the actual purpose of of this group? What are they providing? Couldn't couldn't quite put my finger on it. <laughs> no. Because I found this movie like charming, you know, I found yeah. this movie uh, entertaining and I, 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 I really appreciated a lot of the, the, the acting. Um, but I think a lot of the acting that I really, really uh, enjoyed were a lot of the kind of like throwaway characters that, that sort of surround them. So like we mentioned the family, but you know, there are some like some some Altman like hallmarks of seemingly inconsequential side characters who get to mumble things around them that I found absolutely hilarious and and I think the 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 funniest scene for me in the entire film the scene after they're, they they sort of separate at first, you know, maybe I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but but Sheila and Alex, as we mentioned, they, they sort of have their struggles to connect and, uh, you know, through a, a, a sort of, again, parallel set of circumstances that, that prevent either of them from connecting on their second date and both are left feeling sort of scorned, you know, and stood up. And, and I think going back to your point, Marsh, about, you know, 
time and, and pressure that they both might be feeling, they both immediately turn back to the dating service to to try again, you know. Swiping. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's sort of, yeah, proto-Tinder. And I think that, like, this is an early, you know, it's like early video dating and Altman kind of commenting about like, look at what video dating's doing to us. We can just, you just go and grab another tape and take a look at someone else and just immediately find some other person to, to try to spark your romance with, you know? Yeah. What does that woman say to the potential client? She's like showing her the binder of all the different men she has to choose from and how it's like up to her who she picks. And she's like, I want a non-smoking vegetarian. Am I going to be able to find one of those in this book? And she's like, oh yes, you'll find whatever you need. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so they both go back to the dating service and Sheila, uh, has, has, uh, very quickly found a replacement for Alex, and and she's planning a a date now with this with this other guy, Dana one one five. Dana one one five, and they they uh, re- refresh my memory of like how how Alex shows up to like crash this this date that's about to happen. Well, the scene that precedes it is him talking to his sister, who is like you know has a, d- a disease that is killing her, and she wants to move out from her parents and move in with her friend and this sort of like gives him the the courage to be like I need to break out of here also and so he shows up at at Sheila's loft unannounced and he pops out of the service elevator with a little flower what are you doing here I'm expecting company I have plans Uh, beware of Greeks bearing gifts you have to leave I've decided to overlook Saturday night I forgive you and you and I are going to go O-U-T together tonight. Nobody home, huh? Well, I haven't forgotten Saturday night. Well, you certainly didn't Saturday. Oh, not me. I beg to differ with you. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. But I love it, yeah, because he comes in so hot. Yeah. And he's, just, and he's like, don't worry, I've forgiven you for last Saturday. You know, it's, it's like, as, and then she is like, last Saturday, like, that was your fault. Like, you never showed up. And then he's just like triggered and he's so mad. He's like, oh, enough of this. You know, like making it quite clear that uh, he has not forgiven her yeah. for whatever the hell happened last Saturday to the two of them, the, the missed connection. But he's harboring a great deal of resentment. And that certainly, uh, isn't helped by the fact that another man then shows up from the dating service into her loft. Yeah, I was just saying they're they're having this like they're they're having it out and and yeah Dana one one five or whatever is <laughs> standing there the whole time. Yeah, like, he like shows up in the middle of their argument. And by the way, I don't think we mentioned yet that Julie has a mustache uh, in this film, and it's like very much a, a late seventies forty something guy. Like I look I look good I look hip right you know and. And so when Dana 115 shows up, it's a much younger, attractive man also with a mustache. Yeah. And it was something Sheila had requested very specifically in her video interview for the dating service. Because yes. we get a nice scene of Dana 115 <laughs> watching essentially her like audition tape where she's like, I like a, a nice mustache on a man. And he really perks up. He's like, oh, bonus. Like, I got a mustache. Mm-hmm. And that is the film's co-screenwriter. Oh really? Yes. Okay. Yes. Alan Nichols. Yeah. And he's great. That's the point. I was like a long-winded way of getting here to be like, (laughs) you know, his his moment is so fucking funny. It's so funny in this fight because it starts to escalate pretty quickly. 
Well, he says he's going to go to the Greek restaurant. Yes. Yeah, the same one in Venice, California. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's like supposed to, it's Paul Dooley's restaurant. He's like a spokesman for the, the Greek people, you know, in California. He's like, that's my place. Yeah. It's so funny when Dana 115 comes in and he's got the same little yellow flower that Paul Dooley walked in with. And Paul Dooley's like, I see you saw the same little boy that I caught on the street. And yeah, Dana's reaction is like, oh, yeah. And he like measures with his hand. He's like, oh, yeah, like little boy. Like he's just trying to be a polite conversation because he doesn't sense immediately that Dooley is like out to kill yeah. <laughs> over Sheila. But I feel like that that was the, you know, the essence of like the joke is that he looks very similar to Paul Dooley. Yeah. Uh, his plan for the date was to take her to the, the to the, his Greek restaurant. He's like, that's my move. Like, I take women to that Greek restaurant. You know, he's got the same flower. Like, they're basically dressed the exact same way. They're wearing like the same shade of mm-hmm. like beige suit. I mean, he's just really, like, he is, he is what she was looking for in Paul Dooley, but she just like moved on to the next one after like that one flamed out, you know? And then, yeah. They get into a little pushing match. Uh, I think you'll find the elevators a lot quicker if you go. No, no, wait a minute. No, wait. Now, we we have a date tonight. We are going out. You don't understand. We've been going together for quite a while now. She no, and I, I understand. We are going she out. She probably lied to you, too, because we have a date. She didn't lie to me, and we're going to a You're not wanted there. It happens to be my evening with Now, wait a minute. Lady. No, I have a date with her. We are going out. Sir, will you please go to the elevator and leave? Don't, don't call me sir, it's Dana, and don't pull me around. Well, how about a push? Oh, no, yeah. do not push me. Don't ever push me. Don't touch me. Don't push me. I'll push you if I want to push no, you. No, don't push me. Do not push me. I'll push you no, back. No, please, please. I will push you back. Push don't you. do that, because please. if I get mad, I will hit. And if I, I'll, I am getting very angry. Do not now fight. you're pushing me. Yes, and I'll push you again. If I can't push you, how about I'll you? push you again. I will push and I'm getting <laughs> Don't. If you, I'm going to hit you real soon. I'm going to pop you one. Let's... It starts to get physical, and then she pulls out a she pulls out a poker, right? She pulls out a poker, and, and Dana 115 is such an amazing line when she's got the poker, and she's, like, threatening to, like, you know, hit, hit Alex with it, where he's just, like, he looks around, and he's just, like, I don't even see a fireplace around here, you know? <laughs> I just started cracking up, because he's still trying to, like, maintain his calm, and, like, he doesn't realize, like, the the you know the the chemistry and the history that those two have he's just like can we get going or whatever and then she she just suddenly brains alex with the uh with the poker and he's on the ground out cold and there's like blood coming from his head you know and she faints and that's one of my favorite images of the movie because dana 115 just he just like looks around and pieces out and the camera but even, lingers even better even better, right before he pieces out, he like looks, he takes the poker and he wipes his fingerprints <laughs> off the poker <laughs> and then he like just places it on the dude ground. Dead. Dude, yeah. it was amazing. Like the, the subtleties of what was going on in his performance was, was like just, I was dying. I mean, imagine just arriving to a date and all of that happening. Like, yeah, you, you probably wouldn't bother to make sure she was okay. You just saw her like a person you've never met before, like potentially murder another man in her crazy <laughs> loft. Like I would, I would get the fuck out of there. And that follows <laughs> another, I think, I think another great scene, one of the best scenes as well in the film, which is at the doctor. And when they're at the hospital treating his head wound, first of all, we see that the perfect couple 
is also in the hospital and the guy like scratched his eyeball and then the camera moves on to Alex and Sheila and this whole scene is like really bizarre it's awesome the doctor is wearing sunglasses big aviators you know he's like working on his head stitching it up and Sheila and Alex are having this conversation sort of like you know about Alex's past he was married quote only 12 years uh, and all this you know sort of like funny banter but it, it results in them making out while the doctor is suturing the back of his head and the doctor just goes I don't think you two should be kissing while I'm suturing dude the doctor again <laughs> It's such an amazing, like, because also every lie that they've told him, he's like countering with whatever, like, forensic evidence he's drawing from, like, (laughs) stitching this guy's head up, you know? And then, like, to top it all off, like, you know, as they're, you know, as they've, like, yes, re, they've made up, they've, they've kissed and made up literally, uh, and they're planning to leave. The doctor says, you know, would you like some painkillers? You know, I can write you a prescription for painkillers. And I think Alex, you know, says something like, you know, oh, I don't know about those. You know, I don't think those are, you know, really good. And the doctor's like, yeah, I know some people are reluctant, uh, you know, with painkillers. But when you've seen as much pain as I have, you'd want to kill it too. <laughs> Dude, it's so Altman. I was losing it. Just like the the oddly philosophical high doctor character in Aviators, like saying these really like just like heartbreaking things and touching yeah. things, you know? I really, yeah, I feel like the only thing that doctor was missing was like a cigarette in his mouth while he was doing all of this. He seemed like the kind of doctor that would be smoking on the job yeah. in the hospital. That guy stepped off the set of MASH and into this movie, you 100%. know? Totally. <laughs> Yes. The film is ultimately not, you know, top tier Altman, obviously, but it is like still Altman and it's full of exceptional moments. And, you know, we we sort of glossed over it, but I do really love that missed connection they have with that one date because it's it's showcases one of the things Altman does so well, which is like playing out two perspectives of a single scene like simultaneously and on top of each other with layered audio to boot so paul dooley shows up and he's talking to the parking attendant and he still gets charged you know a buck 50 to park his car even though he's just planning on picking her up but she's not there so he pulls in he parks he's looking around and at the same time the parking attendant gets a call from sheila who's saying hey a guy's coming to pick me up can you give him a message And of course, Sheila's remembering the car he used in the opening scene that had the busted sunroof and all other like air conditioning that wouldn't turn off. And he shows up in a different car because he was trying to like correct his mistake of showing up with his like fancy, the company car, the family car in the opening scene. But then these two scenes are happening and then it all returns to a single frame where the parking attendant is taking a phone call from Sheila, taking down all the information about Paul Dooley's car. And Paul Dooley is trying to contact her on another payphone that's outside of the parking attendant's, like, box. Yes. You know? And then so we hear both of them, like, attempting to reach each other, but they're both—then she herself is within the same frame. She's, like, essentially kind of on both lines of the phone. And to me, that's just, like, that's the Altman touch, you know? Mm-hmm. Two bits of comedy occurring separately and then bringing them together and then having that audio, like, the different audio tracks and focusing our attention— with that audio to create just like a wonderful comedic effect. Yeah. So close, but so far away. And that plays out once again, after they suture his head, there are parallel scenes at 
the loft and then at Alex's house where they try to have sex. They try to get in bed and it's the classic interrupted, you know? Um, Coitus interrupted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I love, again, you know, these throwaway details, but when uh, they go back to the loft, Sheila's like, oh yeah, they're at a, you know, they're at some like press, you know, concert for a punk rock group so we'll just you know we'll just get down or whatever and all of the sudden the band has returned clearly yeah. they didn't stay that long and in one of those <laughs> layered like mic moments you know someone in the background like off screen you just hear him go so what do you want what a band man i dug i dug the medley man when they did search and destroy and the love theme from the texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> i couldn't deal with it <laughs> and you're like what is going on you know the these people are just making up dialogue yeah. about a punk show that they didn't go to, you know? <laughs> right, like, totally. This is unbelievable. Yeah. There's 25 people mumbling, like, around <laughs> this couple that's trying to have sex. Yeah. I would have loved to have heard more, like, side conversations with the Greek family, but that's, like, part of the point is that they're all very cold and quiet because they're just, like, respecting the, the patriarch and, like, waiting for his cues to say, like, absolutely anything at all. They're primarily just silent observers to the horrors of this castle lifestyle oh my god and yet they still like nail it you know they like just the looks that'll get exchanged you know uh, a character deciding to speak and and in doing so must like stand up to, to, to like say his piece you know it's so so formal you know it's like the complete like opposite end of the spectrum as like marsh pointed out earlier and yes when they then go to the the you know alex's house you know that's the solution like well, I'll, well we'll go to my house the the family they they also then interrupt them and and i love it because in that situation again it's that it's like you've laid out the formalism they are like a greek phalanx just like positioned <laughs> outside the bedroom door all of them like yeah, every family that was like member. my favorite shot of the movie yes have I lived to see the day when my oldest son brings a whore into my house? Then Katalavini's Baba and Sheila. What don't I understand, Alex? It's not what it seems. Costa, what do you see? I don't know. What time is it? Fred, what do you see? I see a whore in Alex's room. God damn you, Freddy, shut up. Get her out of this house. All right, but it's, it's not what it seems. We'd better go now. What kind of man are you? You call my friends freaks? Do they bother you? Those are the freaks! Look at them! Who the hell do you think you are? Yeah, I'm gonna get out of here, all right. I'm gonna get out of here. You're weirdos. You're weirdos. I'm sure I'm getting out of here. Weirdos! Weirdos! Yeah, I mean, the commune feels like my personal nightmare, but it does actually seem like far more appealing than living in this castle. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, just sitting there watching an old man, like, conduct to, like, a Leonard Bernstein record. <laughs> like, give me a break, dude. But, but you know, I would say in this moment, I really did... I really did appreciate Altman's ability to do a certain thing with romantic comedies that have always, like, made me um, just sort of struggle with them, which is, you know, I, I struggle with so many romantic comedies because of these very, like, cringy kind of emotional moments of, of two people that, you, you, you know... It, 
because it's movies, you know, you, you go, okay, we, I want these two people that I like to get together. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, through the, the, the manipulations of the plot and romantic comedies, we're, we're subjected to these moments where it goes bad and they're separated and it looks like it's not going to work out. And, and I just, you know, my problem is I get so wrapped up into romantic comedies, So I tend to avoid them because I, I fall for it. I sit there and I'm like, sure. no, you know, like to, to in that moment with Paul Dooley, I'm just like, speak up you son of a bitch, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and Altman's able to like do it, you know, like, Altman made a career out of riffing on genres and riffing on genre conventions. And I think even though this is, yeah, for me, one of his like lesser films, uh, so much so that I'd never even fucking heard of it, you know, and I, I'm a, I'm an Altman fan. (laughs) I was like, what is this movie? You know, I was like, okay, this is Altman doing the, 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 the Hollywood romantic comedy. And like, you know, in spite of all of his, like his eccentricities and his flights of fancy and his, his moments of like oddball improvisation or whatever, you know, that he's just going to kind of like go hang and do this. Let's have a high doctor, like, you know, philosophizing about pain or whatever. Like he still is able to then like, kind of like hit the beats that you expect in like so many romantic comedies, you know? Well, cause he's even ringing those bells with, uh, an odd couple, you know, you can see it. I think you can, you can imagine Altman's thought process. Like what if there was a romantic comedy about normal people or normal looking people? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like, so he is, I think, yeah, happy to hit those beats because even at its core, it's like, well, these weirdos, like, (laughs) see them find love. Yeah. Well, I also think that that's part of the beauty in the title, too. For as mismatched as these characters seem, he is still acknowledging, like, his perspective of that being that they are the perfect couple because there's the counterpoint of the quote unquote perfect couple we keep seeing in the film around them. I don't know if you guys noticed, but in the end credits, they are credited as the imperfect couple. Uh-huh. So as we see something that like is like supposed to be resonating perfection throughout the film, which of course then gets undermined very cleverly in like the final shot, but regardless he is presenting us an image that we would associate with perfection and it is like baked into his design that they are the imperfect couple. And it's these people that maybe he sees as real and with flaws as the perfect couple, people who are somehow through their situations still finding love. Yeah. Yeah. And the, another imperfect couple is when Alex goes on a date with Sky 747. Oh. The veterinarian <laughs> who's into BDSM shit. Um, and we don't have to, you know, we don't have to get too into that. But that's, again, an extended, you know, comic sequence of Dooley becoming increasingly uncomfortable. You know, the classic, like, after this big break in the relationship, he's back out there on the dating scene again. And he's got a... He's got a very cool shirt on. <laughs> yes. And, and the, yeah. And, and so like he is wearing this like loose flowy kind of like seventies outfit, which I think, yeah, there, you know, it's like Sheila's influence on him, you know, he's lightening up, he's developing a new uh, style. And, and also like reacting to it, you know, it's like, you know, and this is where, yeah, he, he isn't just like a nice guy that's sort of struggling. Like, you know, Altman, shows warts and all and like there are moments where he he shows Paul Dooley being in spite of the fact that he's yeah a middle-aged man uh 
very immature and very sort of vindictive. He's trying to look cool. He's trying to look young. He's trying to look hip. And he wants her to see that, even though, yeah, awkwardly, like there's the part of the date where he kind of like fumbles and he's like, ah, these laces on this thing. He's got these like very long laces (laughs) on his weird shirt that he's wearing. And, you know, sky is no Sheila for him. And uh, yeah, he, he, once he gets to the apartment, he kind of, he kind of realizes that yeah, maybe he's acting a little rashly. Yeah. Eventually, you know, after he ditches uh, Sky, he does, you know, end up returning to Sheila and they sort of hit the road. You know, he joins the, the crew. He becomes like a roadie of sorts. And yeah, there are moments of this, you know, the communal road lifestyle, the transient lifestyle that really, really do not appeal to, to Mr. Paul Dooley. A notable example being when he's like trapped in bed with Sheila and then everyone else, like there's not enough beds for everybody. So they all just start like crowding under the covers. And he's like on one end of a Sheila sandwich with another guy <laughs> that's yeah. like a part of the band. And the look on Paul Dooley's face, like I, I felt that agony. Oh, yeah. Yeah, another classic romantic comedy sort of stretch of the film where out on tour with them and it quickly is, you know, he's isolated, he's alone, he's uncomfortable with all of these people, right? You know, the irony of it all. Um, and it, it sort of flames out and he, and he comes home, of course, to find that his sister has passed away. Yeah, a very, like, sudden and very uh, dramatic and surprising turn uh, because he just sort of walks into the house to just see his sister in a coffin, like, in the middle of their wake. (laughs) And I was like, whoa! You know, even by Altman's standards, I was like, whoa! Like, what the fuck, man? Like, Yeah, because he's still wearing his, like, roadie outfit. He's got, like, the the keeping it off the streets (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, an amazing brief turn from uh, Henry Gibson there where he approaches Paul Dooley and says, you know... Knows her heart, Alex. You know about her heart. When? Two days ago. She was with Papa. We tried to find you. Since I'm not a blood relative, but an in-law, so to speak, I feel I'm the only one who can tell you. Your father considers that he's lost two children, Lucy and you. You are no longer alive to him, Alex. You no longer exist as a member of our family to anyone. Under the circumstances, it would be better to make things less painful for everyone and just leave quietly. Don't you agree, Alex? Sorry I had to be the one to break the news to you. Dude. <laughs> he is... I love him, dude. He is so great. Yeah, he feels like out of a horror film. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's so funny, it you know? So and de- and deliberately is. so, you know? It undercuts the entire... You know, mood or whatever. I couldn't help but just watch Henry Gibson's facial expressions throughout the whole film. He was like overacting in a way I found extremely appealing when he was just a silent observer throughout everything. Oh, yeah. He's really uh, having a ball in in that role. Yeah. I mean, you could see the little like glances and looks that like, you know, this is a man that's like fully invested in like the power struggle of 
this this patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he plans on like writing a novel about it in many years. Yeah, like any opportunity <laughs> he has to like elevate his position, like he will take it gleefully, you know. Right. But yeah, yeah. The, the family dynamics are like absurdly hilarious. And I, I think that's is maybe hard for certain people to like kind of connect with because there's, there's a lot of like tonal shifts in this film uh, and they kind of come out of nowhere. And, and I think with the parallels, it, it's, it's almost as if there's just like two completely, at least two completely different like approaches to like what the film is going to be, because I, I don't feel like the keeping them off the streets crew we're able to kind of na- nail that same kind of like absurdity. Like it's set up with the same yeah. kind of stakes, you know, of like overreactions to small infractions and that sort of thing. But like Teddy didn't have the same kind of like humor in his his performance and his delivery. Like he just seemed like a fucking prick. Whereas with the yeah. family, like yeah there are ghouls you know and and yeah it's like vincent price could have been panos just as much as you know the actor right. that, that played him yeah like the band stuff is is that like documentary altman and the family stuff is like stylized altman you know so even within this contrast yeah it's like a totally different approach you know to the form and i think too like this is where you know the film kind of wraps itself up in, in like a completely, I guess, un- unearned way, right? It's like drawing these parallels throughout the whole movie, the back and forth between Sheila and Alex, and then the synthesis, the final sequence. We end like we start at the Hollywood Bowl. But this time, it's not just the orchestra. It's keeping them on the streets with the orchestra, the synthesis. And as they're there, of course, Alex and Sheila have a moment of recognition and then a moment of embrace. All the meanwhile, the formerly perfect couple breaks up uh, in this last sequence, you know, the poetic note that's been developing this whole time. And, And yeah, the film just sort of like shoves these things together and then goes like ah. it's over ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know I mean it's totally no plan here Altman what were yeah. you what were you doing you know oh, yeah. like I, I got like, it yeah. but had no idea how to get out absolutely because it, it, it's not earned from like a narrative perspective but I, I, I like what he's doing with the, the formal element again which is just like developing these two two worlds and then you put them together and then you get the fuck out of there you know missing uh and it's it's like a nearly two hour film but i yeah. i was sitting there going like this is missing about 10 minutes here like it was just like 12 musical numbers exactly you know yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> just like it's missing whatever scene would need to take place where it's like the family and the keeping them off the streets crew 
like come together and and have like yeah the synthesis not just like the the tacked on synthesis of like they're all playing together yeah, what if classical music and rock music were combined right in a more hollywood a more conventional hollywood film you would have that scene and you know it's a testament to altman that that he denies you certain uh certain expectations that you may have that have been built up over years of watching Hollywood schlock, but in Lesser Altman, you see when it's kind of like you said, the gamble like doesn't really pay off, you know, of of like, what if I put all these things together and and we hang out and just see what happens? And then yeah, you kind of suddenly are like, okay, we gotta we gotta give people some kind of ending, or maybe somebody at Fox goes like, How are you gonna end this goddamn yeah. thing? Right? You know, right. Like, yeah. Nice. Cause let's be clear, you know, this was the film he made after Quintet, which is like the most non-commercial film he made in that era. Like a film just totally hated by everyone alive. Yeah. You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's probably his most non-commercial work ever, I would say. Yeah. At least of everything of his I've seen. I mean, that movie is borderline incomprehensible. Yeah. It's like it's like it's like 80s Godar to me a yeah, little bit. It you is. Know? It is. <laughs> Even when it's like lesser Altman, it's still like so much more interesting than than most other like similar fare you'd find out there. I mean, know? for how little of a reputation this film has, I guess in that sense, I was surprised how much I did like it. I was like, oh, yeah. this is like very enjoyable. I'm like, yeah, it's it's got some cracks, you know, but like... Yeah. Solid. He's know. one of those guys where his misses hit. Like uh, they 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 may just hit you for five minutes of the two hour running time, but like those five minutes are a thing that you're gonna be like you know telling people about and be like, oh my god, there's this great scene or there's this great performance or this great moment. And this movie has quite a few of those like strung throughout. It is like I also really enjoyed the act of watching it, and I do almost every Altman I've seen, and I think it really helps being just the the distance of time like could you imagine kind of being alive at the time these movies were coming out and like this phase of Altman's career it was like probably honestly kind of exhausting like seeing like a perfect couple and thinking like this guy again and like he's just doing this again and now it's just like very nice it's like oh great like an Altman like sure there's like some it's a bit messy but there's still some lovely stuff in it and it's got like you know, some great Altman moments. But I, I guess I understand the the critics at the time being like, <laughs> Altman's like such a mess right now that even like if he makes a great movie, people are going to think it was just an accident. <laughs> you know? Sure. Well, and that's, you know, that's a thing about him. He He did have this like kind of fear that he would be found out at any moment, you know? And that's like the way a lot of people talk about him, like especially in his relationship to Hollywood. Like, is he a con man or is he a genius? Well, every time he has a hit film, he's a genius. And every time he makes quintet, he's, you know, he's lost it, you know? Uh, and it oscillated like that for his entire career mm -hmm. till the very end when he was receiving Academy Award accolades after being shut out of the industry for 20 years, you know? Yeah. Shit. And I think one of the reasons, too, this movie is just rather underseen is that it's it's kind of hard to see. Um, it, it's never really had, like, a, a proper release. The DVD copy that exists, like, looks fine. It's totally watchable, but it's not um, 
certainly not like glistening um, and like super sharp. But um, you know, it's something it certainly has in common with the with the other film that we have on the on the program this this evening, and <laughs> that is Gravy Train. That that is a film that is is currently in in pretty rough shape in terms of <laughs> what's available to watch. There were certainly times while watching the uh, the smoothed out YouTube Cinemax uh, VHS rip of the film that I was like, I might as well just be listening to this film because <laughs> I'm actually sure it probably looks quite nice to see like a nice gritty print of this film from the 70s i bet it's like a pretty cool looking movie oh yeah i mean uh the cinematographer uh shot so many fucking bangers like you look at the cinematographer's career i mean that guy has a lot of like very very like sick movies on his list and yeah you know uh the film does have a lot of like sort of like visual flair, some really nice camera work, some really good shots, but, you know, specifically, and, and again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'm just going to say like this movie's insane batshit fucking climax. Uh, I needed more definition because of how, how nuts it is. And we'll get there. We'll describe it, (laughs) but, but it is, quite the fucking set piece and it is a bit of a bummer that you know it's it's yeah it's been like filtered through like seven different fucking types of media (laughs) to to the point that we have it you know now especially since there's so many nice exteriors too just like looking at these especially the west virginia stuff at the beginning like the small town stuff and then even driving out to dc heading through like an autumnal country road you know there's so many like beautiful leaves um there's yeah there's lots of nice location work throughout the entire film that i'm sure is normally quite beautiful but at the same time that i could still see you know what what was there so it was nice to be able to feel some of that and you could hear it as you alluded to and you know what listening to this ad or as a radio play i think would be rather engaging because yep. it is a film full of non-stop hillbilly dialogue oh yeah it is like very very sharp dialogue throughout and and full of so many great one-liners as you pointed out but also like in a similar vein to altman like some very funny moments where there's like a lot of people kind of like talking at once and and you have a lot of like overlapping dialogue that's full of like you know funny little bits of perhaps even improvisational comments and 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 asides you know uh it is surprising on a certain level to like to, to note that it was written by Terrence Malick um, because of like how talky it is, you know, like there's, there's sort of just running commentary from, from every character throughout and, and jokes that are being made that, that reference jokes that were made scenes previous to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's quite a layered film in that sense, like the way it's written. And it is just like a constant sort of, you know, crescendo of, of like gags and bits and, and character development that build, yeah, to this just like, yeah, batshit fucking climax. Yeah, it really doesn't surprise me that like two of the biggest champions of this movie are like just from some like brief research I did are, of course, 
Quentin Tarantino and David Gordon Green. I mean, the influence on both of their work is like so pronounced. It feels like this is a certain type of regional, nonstop, like quick one-liner dialogue that Tarantino is always trying to to strive for. But here, it has like this raw authenticity to it, and then. The humor feels like something that David Gordon Green has been emulating in his Southern comedies. There's so much that he's pulling from from this film and trying to to put in in his work. Hi, good to see you. Listen, you still ain't jerking your turkey down in the hole, are you? Yes, <laughs> again. Oh, hey, Calvin, you old dog, you you just can't stay away, can you? Now, Gaylord, that is a six pack of sheep shit. Only reason I come back here was to get my baby brother and take him with me. You got him. I come here to get Russell because him and me is going to start a new restaurant in Washington, D.C. It's going to be the finest, sharpest, slickest, fanciest restaurant in the whole town. And it's going to be called the Blue Grotto. And we're going to serve nothing but seafood. I mean, we're going to serve shrimp cocktail and clams casino and oysters Rockefeller. And you may even get into things like barracuda and uh, octopus and whale. <laughs> matter of fact, the motto with the Blue Grotto is going to be... Anything that moves in the ocean will lay it on your plate. <laughs> yeah, like, to me, this film fits in, you know, a, a very good period of, of American crime literature. And that's what this film reminded me of, like, yeah. colorful crime novels by Leonard or George V. Higgins. Like, these very dialogue-centric kind of, like, 70s novels. And that's what it feels like. It feels like... Terrence Malick wrote a fucking, you know, Donald Westlake novel and like here it yep. is or whatever. And yeah, it's light, it's funny. And you go, yeah, okay, maybe it's not a stretch that the guy that wrote Badlands wrote this movie or co-wrote this movie. I think there's another person credited as well on the script, but like you you can see it, you know? Yes, yes, because it's also, it's it's it shares one thing uh, directly, I would say, which is, you know, characters who are trying to like escape their their lot in life that you know are doing so through um a sort of like romanticized image of of escape a, a romanticized image of advancement you know that's rooted in pop culture and hollywood and movies i mean as the film opens we have stacy keach you know uh shoveling beans yeah, working in the bean factory <laughs> working in the bean factory like literally just <laughs> shoveling beans into a, into like a big funnel that's like dumping them into cans and he's just like lamenting his his station in life and he's just talking about you know all this damn busy work busy 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 and then he, he declares that that he's got the makings of a Kirk Douglas. He's Kirk Douglas, goddamn! Like he's yelling in this bean factory that he's <laughs> he's he's basically a damn Kirk Douglas, and and he's wasting himself in this fucking shoveling beans, you know. And I love that Grace note when he takes the the piece of Bazooka Joe gum and he pulls out a little cartoon with a fortune on it that says. Be open to new methods and ideas if you want to improve. He takes that advice to heart. <laughs> just, big yeah, way. just as, again, to your point, Andy, Russell, his brother, played by Frederick Forrest, he's uh, at home watching television before his shift at the coal mine, and he's watching this, like, racist guy on TV with a cowboy hat, like, talk about getting rich. Yeah, they're just... 
you know, from this small town in West Virginia, a family of laborers, and they have these big ideas filtered through the things they're consuming. It was that moment with the TV that kind of reminded me of early Terrence Malick for some reason, even though I can't think of a specific scene that, like, is is triggering that memory. But there's something about, like, the guy with the cowboy hat sort of talking about America and its values and that sort of setting the stage for everything that was to come. It did feel at home with the mindset of the, you know, the person who wrote Badlands. You see, honey, this here country we got here ain't nothing but a big old gravy train. Now, all you got to know is when to get off. <laughs> ain't that weird? Certainly advice that uh, the uh, the Dion brothers could have taken to heart a little bit more. You know, they were too focused <laughs> on, on riding the gravy train. And, yeah, I mean, well, Russell rejects that advice. He, like, flings his breakfast or his food or whatever at the TV. Not the, not the only time in the film that Russell, like, flings food at. Uh, objects that yeah that like kind of like hillbilly-esque humor comes through it's this idea that you know this is america the land of opportunity and milk and honey and all these things and here we have a guy watching this on a television set in a home that doesn't even have electricity the tv's hooked up to like a fucking car battery or something and he's just going like well fuck you i'm heading to the mines or whatever right like i still live with my 90 year old mother in this in this like shack in west virginia my brother shovels beans for a living like gravy train what the fuck are you talking about and so yeah it's this then just this kind of like hysterical reaction to to these kind of like breaking points and it's really uh calvin who who initiates it you know where he he just suddenly decides like I need to to improve my life. Yeah, I need to be open to new methods. And, and my new method is going to be to open the greatest seafood restaurant in Washington, D.C., of all places. Uh, and then, you know, he has such like an insane take on what it would be like to be a restaurateur. You know, it's kind of like fucking Joker or some shit like that because he's got that same kind of delusion or or like the king of comedy where it's this it's this just total fantasy about success some of the miners you know when 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 calvin's like telling them about his fantasy the miners are like what the fuck are you talking about you're gonna open a restaurant and then calvin replies like well wait till you see us on johnny carson you know it's this like this idea that by being a, re- a seafood restaurant owner, you're going to get invited to the Johnny Carson show to talk about your, <laughs> your you know, Oysters Rockefeller or something like that. And as it's revealed later in the film, he doesn't really actually know a lot about food at all. He's just <laughs> kind of pretending. And that's one of the aspects of the film that I really, really dug is these guys are, you know, like the truest sort of con men because they're or or forgers even right they are willing to just like shape shift into any role real or not as the situation fits and i think that's one of the most beautiful things about the film at at a certain point they're dressed as cops at a certain point stacy keach is pretending to be cia Uh, at a certain point they're on a real heist crew like all this stuff is happening and these yokels are just like sliding in and out of these false personas yeah just stumbling through all these 
roles that they are playing, especially like Russell's character. Like he's constantly like commenting on what's happening through through film titles. You know, he's comparing like what they're going through to in 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 one case, like a movie that came out only like two or three years prior to this. Like when they're talking about all the, the, the crime that they're getting involved in, you know, he's like, oh, it's like the French connection. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is 74. That movie came out like three years <laughs> before this movie. But it's like, yes, that they they exist in a world not of like crime they exist in a world of like media and movies and images of crime and and that's it they they are like playing these parts that they've seen on tv and and the crazy thing about this movie and what makes it so fun is that for most of the movie they're kind of like stumbling with luck and and that's just about it you know through all these various moments where it's like they should get caught, but because they're just so dumb and they just believe in the part that they're playing at that moment so intensely, they, they kind of like get through. In, in, a, in a certain respect, this isn't like uh, a leisurely hangout film like Altman would do. <laughs> no. This is a this is a breakneck farce that that just increasingly uh, becomes more and more like frantic and chaotic and violent and goofy as it goes. Yeah, it's a it's a foot on the accelerator kind of movie and it only just picks up speed as it goes along. Especially when you've got just these two figures that are just so confident in everything they do. So it ends up just being a series of moments and actual action. They're acting on all of the things they're thinking about and planning. I mean, it's even kind of hinted at through like their confidence through a funny line when they're pulling into Washington DC and they see the Lincoln Memorial and they just confidently say like ah yes that's where Lincoln's buried like oh wow how remarkable like he's buried there you know (laughs) like just no second guessing anything they're thinking about right like I believe in this restaurant like this is all going to work out and they just like surge ahead and it's non-stop yeah and and again like for for the most part for like 90% of the movie all of that seems to just somehow work out for them from one moment to the next (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. while things are going bad for other people around them you know even just a little moment when they go to this like brothel like uh you know calvin says to his brother like hey here we are in dc like basically doesn't this get you horny let's go get let's go don't you want to get your i think he says you want to get your bell rung and they go to a brothel and like again they're 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 especially for like Frederick Forrest's character, Russell, like he's, he's trying to like have that same kind of swagger and confidence that his brother has, but it's also, you know, part of the humor is that he hasn't been in these situations before. Neither of them have really been, uh, in too many of these moments. And Stacy Keach, when he's like arranging for their, their massages, you know, in quotation marks, uh, he throws down his payment and he throws down his shell, his shell card from like the gas company. And the yeah. person working there is like, it's a shell card. You can't pay for this with a shell card. He's just kind of like it worked before. And they kind of like just give up and they're like, all right, fine, whatever, you know? And then they go and they get their massage, even though he's, he's, paying with a fucking like gas gas company credit card or something like yeah like the rest of the film you know has this the the heist and aftermath structure basically which accounts for again the sort of speed we were talking about and this film has a, a very 
colorful heist crew, and, oh, and I we're love the crew. and we're only you know again we don't get the background, we don't really understand you know the the greater relationships at play here, but everyone is this very unique and colorful kind of character, and this is immediately displayed as the heist crew meets up by the lake and you can see you know like the dc shit in the background and this big buff blonde guy named rex goes can you believe my wife packed a lunch for me today (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) like before you know before the heist or whatever and then like the planner shows up tony and he's like this parody of like a wannabe italian gangster wearing this like baggy suit what'd you say your name was carlos (laughs) sounds mexican it's puerto rican Want some Cracker Jacks? Hey, Tony. How's it going, babe? Hey, Tony. Great. Hi. My Hi. brother Russell. What's happening? How you doing? Your brother tells me you're pretty good with the dynamite. Yes, sir. How good? Well, I can blow a gnat off a cat's ass without burning his fur. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's great, but don't do nothing unless I tell you, right? I mean... Yeah, these guys are these guys are wild. Yeah, you know. And Rex, I I I think I should point out for people who haven't seen oh. this movie and can't visualize it, he looks and and very much kind of carries himself. I don't know if you guys felt this way, but like a kind of like a young Trump. Like he's got the the swoopy blonde hair, and yeah. and he's just this kind of like loud, goofy, fucking idiot. You know. Uh, yeah, and and I, I I love it. You know because. Right away, you know, if you know anything about heist movies, you take one look at this crew and you think, "There's no way they're they're pulling this heist off." Like this is this there's, there's no way these these fucking you know uh, a bunch of fucking douchebags are gonna like pull this off. But again, in in the same way that we've discussed with other things, like the heist scene does unfold and it goes off. Without a hitch, minor I, hitch, a minor with, with hitch, with some bicyclists, yeah. but like, yeah, it all it all allegedly goes well. You know, they they do this elaborate performance again. The idea of play acting, where the mm-hmm. Dion brothers dress up as cops, and Carlo dresses up as a you know like sanitation worker, sort of working on the grass, uh, and then yeah, they stop the armored car and they they. They pull some bullshit, you know, fast talking uh, <laughs> yeah. Dion Brothers shit. Yeah. Uh, and they get the, you know, the driver out and trick him and pull guns on him. And next thing you know, they've stolen the armored car and a yeah. bunch of cash. And I do love that you pointed out like the 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 bicyclists, like the only witness are these like people like bicycling through the park where this this heist is taking place. Just a lot happening all at once with a lot of characters and people are all kind of yelling at each other and Carlo is like screaming at the people on the bicycles and I don't know if you picked up on like some of the stuff he was like screaming at them but like at a certain point he was just like you you like he's like you shouldn't be here like you gotta get out of here you can get arrested we're gonna yeah. take those bikes <laughs> like, and he's just like a construction worker or something like that there's like a lot of little like bits of of I think like yeah you know in a way that you would see in Altman films like 
just this this kind of like controlled chaos in a lot of these scenes that yeah. that if you really are kind of like looking you can pick apart like so many different great things that these actors are doing like everybody is in their character and and riffing and trying to find a way to elevate the scene like a lot of it feels very improvisational at times you know that that people are just kind of like playing and having fun i did particularly love after the you know, we're talking about all these like great one-liners and these throwaway lines, but there's some really good like physical stuff that's involved in this film too. And I love when after the, you know, quote unquote successful heist, they're um, holding out in a space uh, in like this apartment, but then they get raided on by the cops. And there's just like such a funny physical gag where someone yells, you know, like, oh shit, it's the cops, like hit the lights. And one in Rex grabs a frying pan and literally hits the, like the hanging bulb he like hits the lights and shatters it um that was like a nice little touch that felt like a creative like in the moment type gag that they probably came up with and that's really like the the aftermath of the heist where this film like you know marsh you describe it as like the the foot on the gas pedal like that foot in the the aftermath of the heist just jams down on the accelerator in a way that i was not expecting everything to this point had been very kind of like goofy and and charming and like oh look at these bumbling hillbillies but when they're waiting at the 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 sort of like you know the 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 safe house this apartment or whatever to to get their their cut of the money uh we should point out tony and carlo in the aftermath of the heist took a separate car and And there's a very telling moment because in the confusion of the aftermath russell tries to get in the car with tony and tony's like no 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 you go in the other car you go in the other car and right at that moment i was like oh yeah double cross is on let's go you know and i didn't pick up on it you know, when it happened, but it, it makes sense afterwards. Like right after that, as Carlo and Tony are driving away and they're leaving those guys behind, Carlo turns to Tony and goes, you really are a genius, man. And then as you see what's to come, he's a genius because they got the money and they got these dopes to pull off the heist for them. And they, we discover, leave them high and dry at this apartment, have double-crossed them, have turned them in, given the cops their their location. And yeah, the cops show up and, and uh, you know, you wonder, like, what is going to happen? And that's where Russell, like, goes full, again, into the role of, like, well, what would... What, what what happens in the movies? What do guys do? Yeah, and he yells out something like, you know, the Dion brothers romp and stomp and just immediately just starts blasting away at the cops out of the window. Starting this like just absolutely nuts shootout with the cops and the movie becomes incredibly violent suddenly. And yet they're like gleefully taking part in this, you know, Rex on the flip side is like terrified and like realizes how bad this is and how serious this is. But the Dion brothers, nothing left to lose are loving every minute of this, you know, Frederick force, particularly like, I mean, he starts going nuts. Oh, he is just having a blast literally and figuratively. And even before the cops show up, he's twirling his gun around and there's even banter about Shane and Clint Eastwood, you know, like mm-hmm. in the apartment as they're talking, but it does have that big, 
big shift because when the cops show up, like, you know, these like stormtroopers just like, boom, get all the heavy weaponry out. And the minute it pops off, they're firing like an unbelievable amount of, yeah. <laughs> of ammunition into that building. Oh, yeah. And it's, yeah, not the not the last time we're going to see a building sort of destroyed. But <laughs> uh, I, I, I do want to give the Dion brothers credit. They do have a lot of luck. They are bumbling. But there is ingenuity there to a certain extent because they escape from this shootout when Russell places some dynamite behind the fridge and they blast their way out. Yeah. And then into the next building, into the next building. Yes. And then they dress as police uh, and escape while all the police are fooled by their uh, stoic walk. Again, this like insane confidence. They just stroll down like into the cops and sort of just, just act their way through it. You know, the first two (laughs) cops that they come across are kind of like, Looking at them funny, like what's going on? But like their confidence just like yeah. gets them right past. Stacy Keach just like drops the word lieutenant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we're going to see the lieutenant, and then and then as they get outside, like they're kind of like strolling straight through like this army of cops, and then finally, like again, you think the jig is up when one of the guy, presumably the lieutenant, like yells at them. Where are your helmets? Because they're not wearing their like the their, riot their, gear. Yeah, the yeah. riot gear, and they just yell back, "No one gave us any." <laughs> and the guy just looks at him again, like, "Okay." And then they just get into a cop car and drive away, and just like tear it up, like so, like without any grace. The car just like does a big burnout and just like shoots off down the road. They just like they're they're not like carefully making an exit. They just like they're like we're out of yeah. here. And they're immediately living in the moment, vibing. They start stealing, taking stock of everything in the cop car that they're going to steal, money, ammunition, marijuana cigarettes. Yeah, Memphis yeah. Green. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a, what I think you were like kind of alluding to earlier, Andy, about... You know, these these great scenes with all these characters talking over each other, you know, probably my favorite example of that is in the following scene where what are they going to do with this cop car? Well, why don't we pull over that T-Bird and take their car, you know, because this is a (laughs) stolen cop car. And they pull over these like three businessmen or three just like guys. Yeah, they're like at a convention or something like that. Yeah. You sort of pick it up and all the mumbling. DC conventioneers, you know, and they pull them over. And they they take him into this alley and they start making him strip. And I was like losing my shit. That is a hot car, friend. That is the hottest car in Washington, D.C. In fact, that is the hottest car since the French Connection, and it is full of dope. 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 You ever heard of dope? Marijuana. That's it. Marijuana and heroin. Heroin. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Mandarin. J.D., I told you I didn't want to come down here. He's a goddamn dope pusher. He told us he's a pimp. He's a mess. He's going to get us some girl. What's that, Susan? And like these poor guys are just kind of going along with this thing because obviously they think these are cops. But it's like when you start getting asked questions like, what size is your suit jacket there? Take that off. You know, I'm a 40. Is he a 40? Like, and then, yeah, some guy reveals like, I can't take off my pants. I'm not wearing skivvies. All this is 
is unfolding like like minutes away from like this this like wild bunch esque shootout that they had with the cops, you know. And yeah, they they take their suits, they take their T bird, they shove them in the trunk of the cop car, and they continue to live it up. You know, they take these dudes, they take their money, and they head to like one of the nicest restaurants in D.C. Meanwhile, it's at this moment. Yes. <laughs> A certain actor makes an arrival into the film. <laughs> oh yeah, man! I I was beaming. It was uh, it was a joyous occasion uh, for for like after a series of like comic and like delightful scenes. Here here he is, Mister Dooley himself. And yeah, he plays he plays a doctor in his brief moment. He never stands. He sits behind a desk the entire time. But but Tony is presenting him with some of the cash, uh, hoping he could like get some of this taken care of. And Dooley has a great line where he says, "You'd be better off with the Lindbergh baby in that bag." Hey, what are you saying, huh? Anybody who tries to pass this stuff has got to be out of his mind. Did you guys hit the Treasury Department? I mean, it's all consecutively numbered. Look at it: one, two, three, four, just like that. Well, so what? It's money, ain't it? The ink isn't even dry. Hey, listen, you promised me. We got a deal, man, you understand? So call the AMA. Hey, you? look, you better take this money. All right, I'll take it. Two percent. Yeah, Dooley's like some bent doctor yeah. fence. Yep. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I love the phone calls he has, because in this scene... Tony's trying to, you know, get the get the deal. And Dooley takes a series of phone calls where he's just like handing out Quaalude scripts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 500 milli or something, he says. Yeah. And he like, oh man. It is a funny turn, and it is kind of a very like kind of straightly played with a slight comic tinge to it. But yeah, I buy him as this, you know, this like shady doctor fence who's just like handing out quaaludes, changing dirty money. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he tells Tony, I'm not taking that money, you know, and he sends him on his way. You know, it's like really here where I, I really started to think about some of the things that this film was was trying to do around all of this anarchy and this, this uh, you know, this fun that the Dion brothers are having that we're having, but like the choice of setting it in DC. Uh, and, and it's very like pointed. They reference DC a lot and you see a lot of uh, like, you know, second unit photography of the monuments in DC and the Capitol and the, the Washington monument. And, and, you know, it, it struck me again, like, all right, this is a seventies film. So like, they're trying to make a big point here about the corruption of the world and the corruption of America and where to go other than the capital of the United States of America, the place where everyone's incompetent, bent, corrupt, double dealing, double crossing, stealing from one another, and simply just trying to get ahead. Yeah, because this is a 1974 film. This is post-Watergate. And when they shove those guys in the trunk, uh, they say, you have the right to remain silent because this trunk is bugged. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a very paranoid town we're in. Yeah, you know? so there are, yeah, there's direct allusions to Watergate and Nixon and even, you know, also kind of like a, you know, predicting eyes wide shut sort of situation. Uh, I believe Russell, when they first drive into town, he he sees like the Senate and he's like, But those suckers have more women and parties and God knows what all. <laughs> Whatever. Like. But it's a good point. I mean, like, the, the, I think, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, 
lot of like seventies crime films like post Watergate can, can feel so at times nihilistic is, is the, the very idea of a, a nation of people going, well, if even the goddamn president's a crook, like, fuck it, right? Yeah, we all should get just- Get on the gravy train. Let's get on the gravy train. Let's all get ours, you know? You know, there there isn't any, like, moralizing that's going on in this film. Like, there, there there's no scene where the Dion brothers are going like, man- is this the kind of life to live? Like, no, there is no question. They that, would never say that. Right, that this is the life that they want to live, you know? Like, Russell even says, like, after the heist, like, this is the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. We are witness to a great becoming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, way better than the economy surrounding beans. Oh, God, yeah, you know, or the coal mine. You know, that, that scene where they're just like, in spite of everything that's happening, they just like, go have a very nice meal at a restaurant and again like are trying to play the role of like big shots and and guys who know fine dining but they're like orders like betray all of that you know ordering old yeah. granddad and seven up at the nicest <laughs> restaurant in town you yeah know? and just like tossing out the money that they have on all the people that are waiting on them as a means of just covering their tracks you know they can be as as gruff and yeah. as southern as they'd like but it's like oh here's some money this will make all the boo-boos go yeah. away for all of these waiters that are just shocked at their behavior yeah they understand how the world works more than most people you know well you got that cash just start handing it out and people will fucking do anything for you you know and to again think of that that connection to to the times andy it just struck me that later in the film there's a point where stacy keach is reading the newspaper and on the back page he's not reading it says you know mid-east oil crisis and huge block letters and that might not as well even exist to these guys, you know, just they're laser focused on on their goal. And in that in this film, that's to get their fucking money back that Tony stole. Yeah, it becomes a quest for Tony for the remainder of this film, just like co collecting more people that could lead them closer to Tony. They just kind of go hell bent for leather, like to any connection they can find to him, like person by person, which brings them into connection with uh, Margot Kidder, who plays, I think it was Margie. Is that Margie, what they were called? Yeah. They were called yeah. her Margie. <laughs> Yeah, they just burst into her apartment pretending to be police officers. At least that's their way of covering it after she's using an air horn, blaring it right in their faces. Oh, and then they like, yeah. yeah, they pull the act of like having badges after they've like destroyed the door to this woman's apartment. <laughs> yeah. And they're just like, yeah, you're coming with us, ma'am. <laughs> you know? There's a, a an interesting bit in that scene that I don't know if you thought of this, uh, my horror guys, but uh, Margot Kidder brandishing a knife, the same year black christmas came out sure oh yeah interesting mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh -huh. obviously like we we could sit here and like we could work our way through all the intricacies of like <laughs> what the dion brothers do but like I, w I would hate to derive anybody that would want to watch this film of like so many of those pleasures but but basically yeah they they threw this series of you know very kind of um at times awkward and, and clumsy approaches, they, they managed to get there. Like they managed to like find their way to Carlo, to Tony, 
and to where uh, the the place where where they have the money this 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 building that's that's scheduled for demolition and this begins like this yes sort of long running climax of of the brothers trying to to confront Tony and there's again like so many so strange like characters and people that they encounter you know in this like climactic kind of showdown like first of all there's the guy in the hot in the in the in the bathtub yeah. that they confront you know who's one of Tony's associates and and I was cracking up when when that scene is insane yeah, the scene's nuts, and they're like they're holding guns on him in the bathtub, and the guy's like, "I want to put my pants on," and he just yells at a certain point, like, "I want to put my pants on." How close are we to that other building? I want to put my pants on. I have to meet my mom. <laughs> Did you catch yeah. that? Line? Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's insane. It's so bizarre. Yeah, there'd be a good montage if you wanted to put together the Dion brothers just bursting in to a space. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty yeah. much like every new scene is just, yeah, they have to like break down a door or threaten someone or lie to sort of, yeah, you know, get to the heart of it all, their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, I mean, again, the, you know, yeah, I don't want to spoil everything, but there's like sniper shots being shot at them at one point, you know, they're running through all these spaces and, the whole time they're having fun and they're jawing. He's finally getting to live out, you know, that they're finally getting to live out. And yeah, he's like yeah. charting everything through these these like pop references and movie references. It's it is in that regard, like you said, Ryan, yeah, yeah, again, where you kind of like connected to Badlands. And you know, the whole point of Martin Sheen's character, right, is that he's trying to be like a a movie idol, you know, he's trying to be the the, mm-hmm. the guy from Gun Crazy or whatever. It is funny that throughout the entire film, it feels like they're bursting into all of these rooms like the Kool-Aid man. And they're just like demolishing everything that's in their path and just like laughing with glee throughout all of it. So it's only natural then that the climax of this film would have to then be the filmmakers taking the extra step of having the entire set and place <laughs> that they're setting the finale of the film and be demolished around the brothers because there's only so much they themselves can destroy actively throughout the film. I mean, I have to say, you know, as a as a huge huge action movie fan and a and a and a, and a connoisseur of action set pieces, <laughs> you know, where where the action and the setting are 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 like in this 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 harmony together. This set piece is is easily now for me like one of my favorites. The intricacy, the choreography of of this long running shootout that's taking place in the building and wrecking balls that are smashing through the ceilings and the floors and having to sort of work around that and narrowly escape being crushed while also having to desperately reload and put down, you know, gunfire at a, you know, at someone at the other end of a hallway. I mean, it's, it is a very impressive sequence. I mean, and I, I say that in a way that is, is not hyperbolic at all. Like I was, I was 
blown away by this this climax. I demand a restoration because it's really dark. You know, it's nighttime and it is these just wonderful shots of a wrecking ball destroying this building. We see it from the outside. We see it from the inside. We see the Dion brothers ducking out of the way while, yeah, trying not to get shot by Tony and his goons with their shotguns, you know? All the meanwhile, <laughs> again, they are like yelling quips, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a great one where they're like, Ain't going to be any fancy Italian funerals for you, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They are. They're like egging each other on. They're giggling. I mean, the the only word I can say for it is like infectious. Like you just get totally wrapped up in their insanity that, that you are just also like rooting for it to get more and more like nasty and wild and bonkers, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, and you, you both, of course, know how much I love seeing a, a building demolished on screen. Yes. It's a certain fascination of mine. And for, for the listeners, I've actually directed both of these other hosts of The Gauntlet in a short film where they themselves are the ones destroying a building as a woman is living inside of it. It's very <laughs> many, true. Many, many years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, this movie reminded me in the best way of, like, Miami blues, you know, this, like, gleeful crime spree kind of vibe you know where it's fun and it's funny and and that's it you know it's just it's a blast yeah just a bunch of a a bunch of like buffoons killing each other over a bag of marked cash that's going to be totally useless to them like i love those stakes because it's everything for them that bag isn't just money it's the blue grotto seafood restaurant yeah it's the restaurant fund you know and and hillbillies to the end you know they do do a a, a very classic archetypal uh whistling bird call like signal uh situation during the shootout where he yells like we gotta flush him out Dion brother style. Yeah, know? they like, start doing bird calls. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys see the reason that they changed the name of the film to the Dion brothers? No. That it was confusing audiences because Gravy Train was the name of pet food and that people were thinking like they're like they thought people were talking about the movie but they were actually talking about pet food so they decided to simplify it. Wow. <laughs> Just called the Dion brothers. That's awesome. That that is so fitting with what this like movie is on a certain level mm-hmm. to me. Like I love it, and yeah, like I don't want to. Th- this movie I really don't want to like spoil because I, I really think it's like where you go and where you wind up and and what unfolds is something that you really should just like watch and experience. And yeah, the quality like it is what it is, but like. It is very watchable and, and you know, I, I highly encourage anyone that, that likes these kinds of things, you know, I think we've characterized it well. You're in for a, a, a treat you didn't know uh, you, you needed in your life. It turns out the perfect couple was the Dion brothers. <laughs> the whole time, dude. They Could are. you imagine if, yeah, if Altman had gotten it's a hold true. of these guys? Oh, man. And you know what, like... You you're in you are in mid seventies territory here because you've got Stacy Keach and Frederick Forrest. I I think, you know, two actors that we all uh, really appreciate, but I think two actors from this era who get kind of overshadowed by a lot of the other talents. I mean, like, 
the 70s is like a decade of just like really special, I think, actors, the kinds of actors that just like don't really exist anymore in Hollywood. I mean, except like, for the ones from this era that are still working. Right. Yeah. Except for, except for and those even people. some of them. You yikes. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on. But like, uh, man, you know, Stacy Keach and, and Frederick Forrest, Frederick Forrest, particularly like always kind of struck me as, as, you know, as a, as a kind of like Harry Dean Stanton type guy, you know, that like every role he's in, you know, he, he fills it so well and he has that similar kind of, yeah, Southern fried hang dog charm that is just so like, so irrepressible. You can't help but like, like the guy you can't help but beyond that even you can't help but love the guy even when he's playing like scoundrels and 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 criminals and and nihilistic psychopaths like like russell dion in this case like francis ford coppola i appreciate frederick forrest you know these are our dualies yeah ryan these are the dually films that we brought to the table and you know, one was like a teaspoon worth of dooley, and the other was a was a big old heaping handful. Uh, so, what about you? You know, when you think of Paul Dooley, what comes to mind? Well, I must say, I, I simply can't help but think of Dooley uh, outside of Robert Altman when I think of my my favorite Dooleys. I do particularly love him in A Wedding. I think he's super funny in that. But when when it comes to Paul Dooley, I, I'd have to go to Robert Altman's film O.C. and Stiggs. And that's another one of his that I think has been sort of treated unfairly and has been maligned over the years. But I'll never forget um, a few years ago when the Chicago Film Society showed uh, an amazing 35mm print of it at the music box. And it was just like a revelation. I mean, I would put O.C. and Stiggs maybe, I mean, I'd have to maybe think about it, but possibly in my top five Altman. I think it is a perverse and shocking film, one that's sense of humor is extremely grating in a way that I don't think his other films are, but in a way that I find extremely appealing, especially since it centers around two teenagers. And the main antagonist of the film is sort of Paul Dooley. He, he plays like the head of a family, the Schwab family, and he stands for everything that our heroes, O.C. and Stiggs, stand against. And they, they go out of their way to just really ruffle his feathers, you know? And it, it's nice to see Paul Dooley get extremely angry at multiple points throughout the film. Um, so if you want to check out like an extremely funny and rather mean-spirited comedy, definitely seek out Robert Altman's O.C. and Stiggs uh, for some lovely Paul Dooley. So yeah, that does that's what I would say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean, yeah, I had a blast. It was it was nice to get a little dooley and a whole heaping pile of dooley. So it's been a, a lovely two weeks of of checking in with with dooley himself. But I think ready to to move away from dooley potentially. I mean, depending on what the what the it'd be pretty good <laughs> if I came with a dooley next week for whatever Marsh has got picked. But uh, it is Marsh's turn next week. So what do you got for us? Well, it seems. Everywhere you look these days, people are talking about gas, people are talking about oil, people are talking about <laughs> all kinds of shit. Even in the Dion Brothers, it was in the newspaper, there was an oil crisis, and and all this was, was swirling around my head this week as I was thinking of a topic, and, and that's ultimately what I arrived at. Bring me films about 
oil exclamation mark. This could be anything relating to that crude, crude shit we all know and love. I'm going to make us all watch uh, Wang Bing's nine-hour crude oil. Actually, no, it's like 15 Yeah, it's hours, way longer it? than that. And no, you're That's not. That's what I'm going to yeah. play. I'll kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I don't know how the hell I ever got into this anyway. It's all lies. Goddamn video machines and goddamn cameras are all lies. You know, they tell lies on television. Hi. Who's this? Hi. Why, early? Oh, it's my day. No, you're right on the dot. Here you go. Oh, now you got two of them. I see you saw the same kid with the flowers on the corner. Yeah, the, the little kid. Yeah, I saw. Yeah. Uh, Alec 207, this is Dana 115. Pleased to meet you, sir. I'm almost ready. Where are we going? We're going to go to this terrific little Greek restaurant I know in Venice. Venice? California. God damn it, that's my restaurant!